Hola, you're listening to the Life in Paradise podcast. Have you ever wondered what it'd be like to live in the middle of a developing tourism town? Sounds great, right? Well, it doesn't come without challenges. Like most people listening, I had a steady job, lots of stress, worked my ass off so I could enjoy vacations. One day, I came to the realization that I needed to embed myself into a vacation permanently, so that's what I did. Now my home is San Juan del Sur, Nicaragua. It's a small town on the Pacific coast with a population of about 15,000 people. I have a small sailboat charter business which pays the bills and leaves a bit left over to cover my habits. And even though we call it paradise, Nicaragua is still a third world country. So picture this, 36-year-old Texas guy and his two trusty Labradors are transplanted into a developing country, and they're trying their hardest not to stick out like sore thumbs. These are the stories of what life is like, some good, some bad, but all entertaining. So sit back, relax, and live vicariously through me for about the next 30 or 45 minutes. And I promise you, this stuff can't be made up. not quit podcasting. I've just been away. It's hot here in San Juan del Sur. This is the hottest time of the year. And my new house does not have air conditioning. None. So I'm not exactly thrilled about the house where I live, but at least I live in a house. Because for about a week, I was homeless and paying to stay in a hotel. So the house fiasco has been sorted out. I wasn't sure where I was going to live. I looked at a couple of houses. One was right in town, which is too close to town. One was 30 minutes outside of town, which is too far from town. And it just so happens that the house up the hill from where I was living changed owners and became available for rent. The only problem with that is that the house had been neglected for about five years. The guy who was living here didn't manage anything, didn't take care of it. They didn't have a door. The pool looks like a pond. It's just nasty. So the new owner made a deal with me, gave me a pretty decent price on rent in exchange for hanging out here and kind of managing the reconditioning of the house. But honestly, I'm rethinking it. If something else pops up that's conducive to my requirements, I will move. The pool was supposed to have been fixed two weeks after I moved in, and they haven't even started on it. It looks like a pond. There's frogs in there. And it's dropping about an inch and a half per day from evaporation. And if I didn't mention it's hot, it's very hot. In my room, there's only windows on one side where there's sliding glass doors that kind of open up. But the other side, there's nothing. So you don't have a breeze through there. And you can get in there and turn the fan on. And I got this fan that's probably illegal in the U.S. because it's got these metal blades and it would chop your fingers off. But I got this giant fan blowing at my face. 
But if you go in there in the afternoon, it feels like somebody's got a hairdryer up to you. It's just blowing hot air on you. So it's been kind of brutal, to say the least. I, I had this house until September. I think the end of September. But if I have a chance to get out of here before then, I'm gonna. So that's the house situation. There's a lot more details, but they're boring and I'm tired of thinking about them. So my friend Pierre runs a small hotel, like a mom and pop type place. And he made me a deal to live there until I got my house situation sorted out. So for about a week, me, Bentley, and Bronco lived in a little tiny room that's just big enough for a queen-size bed and a bathroom. There's no room to sit. There's no room to do work. There's no desk. Just a bed. But it's a pretty nice little hotel, and it worked. But a couple of funny things happened while I was staying there. I walked up the stairs going up there for the first time, and I had Bentley and Bronco with me, giant backpack full of stuff. And I asked Pierre, I said, how critical is it that the dogs stay out of the pool? I said, because they may just go run and jump in it. About that time, they both took a beeline for the pool and leaped off in it, swimming around amongst some customers. And Pierre, in his French accent, we like to keep them out of the pool, but sometimes we understand. And it was funny because I watched them look at the pool and I thought to myself, they're about to go jump in that pool. And I could have called them to stop them. But I didn't. They were hot. They'd been riding in the back of the truck in the middle of the day. And then I did one of those, oh, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Come here, guys. Come over here. And called call the dogs back with a tone of voice that made them realize I wasn't serious. And so they swam around a little bit longer. They got out, and then they shook off all over everyone. And I always think it's funny when people are walking on the beach and their feet are in the water or they're in the pool, they're soaking wet, and dogs shake off, and they do this cringe and flinch and turn. And if you could take a picture of the people's face whenever they're thinking or portraying the body language of, ooh, this dog's shaking off on me. If you could capture the picture of that face, it would make some hilarious postcards. And I always say to people, oh, oh heaven forbid you get wet as they're walking you know, down through the ocean. It's just tiny little droplets. I understand if the dog's muddy. If the dog's just wet and shakes off, there's no reason to cringe. It's not olive oil on your clothes. It's just water. But luckily, Pierre wasn't mad. He understood. They have two resident black labs themselves. So while I was there, there was four of them running around. Of course, I could tell the difference, but a lot of people said, how can you tell the difference? Well, the other two Labradors are about... 30 pounds heavier than my two. Other than that, you can't really tell. But it wasn't that bad. I was there, and um, breakfast was included every day, so that was kind of nice. And I kind of got to know one of the managers there. His room was next to mine, so we kind of hung out and talked. One night, a guest came and hung out with us, and he was hammered drunk. And he was looking for a lighter. And so I let him borrow my lighter, and he used it. And he set it down on the table. And then I put it in my pocket. And I thought to myself, this guy's drunk. He just borrowed my lighter. I'm going to see if I can trick him into getting me another lighter. I'm going to make him think that he's lost mine. So the night goes on a little bit. 
he gets up, goes wanders around, comes back, and I go, hey, man, where's that lighter? He's like, oh, the lighter. Then, um, okay, hold on, let me go find it. And it's in my pocket. He didn't know that. So he went off on a lighter hunt. And then he comes back, and he's got a white lighter in his hand. And he goes, what color was your lighter? And I was like, white. It's that one in your hand right there. I was like, okay. And so he hands it to me. And I felt a little bad. But at the same time, I'm kind of making it a new game of mine to see if I can acquire lighters without paying for them. So if you're around me, just make this a fair warning. And I don't need to light a ton of things. I really don't. But it's kind of become a fun game. So I'm warning you now, watch your lighter because I'm going to try to get it. I know it's been a long time since I've done a podcast, but after I got back from my trip to Belize and Guatemala, I had to move. Then my friend Corey came into town. And from the time that Corey got here until the time that Corey left, we went nonstop. I mean, we entered a chili cook-off. We went to Sunday Fun Day. We went sailing. We went hiking. We went surfing. We went snorkeling. We went to Laguna de Apoyo, which is a, a lake that's a collapsed volcano, a big crater lake that's pretty cool. We spent the night there. So every day was just going, going, going nonstop. We worked out one day, and poor Corey, the heat from the gym at the, at the oven, then I call it, got him. We did like a CrossFit workout, and it was extremely hot, and he got him, but he tried. So I challenge anyone else who comes down here to go to the oven and work out with me. It's not fun, but I feel for you, Corey. You tried. Anyway, so we went nonstop, and then the day that Corey left, I had some other family come into town. And then the next day, I had more family and some friends come into town. So it was two straight weeks of vacationing or entertaining vacationers. And you got to do what they want to do because they don't get to come down here very often. They're happy. They're on vacation. And you know on vacation, you start out strong and you're active and you're going and you're going and you're doing and you're not sleeping. And then towards the end of the vacation, it kind of wears off. You get tired. You slow down a little bit. Well, in this case, I had two separate groups back-to-back. So as Corey was kind of winding down, which we still ran wide open the whole time, but we were both kind of getting tired, then I had a fresh group show up, and they're ready to start over. So then it's like, bam, Sunday funny, kicking it off. And by the end of week two, me and the dogs are exhausted. So today is the first day that I've had no one in town, which, don't get me wrong, I love having people in town. It was a blast. I wouldn't trade it for anything but I would be lying if I said I wasn't tired. And the dogs were so tired that normally when they ride in the back of the truck, they're like heads are out the side, they're taking the wind, they're barking. They were lying down in the back of the truck sleeping every time we'd go somewhere. So I knew that they're exhausted. If they're exhausted, I'm exhausted because we pretty much do the same things every day. But it's all over with, back to my normal life, and I had a blast. One thing that Corey and I did while he was here was enter a chili cook-off. Now, San Juan del Sur is full of people from all over the world, and there's not many people from Texas. And everyone who knows me knows the story about our world championship chili recipe. Every time I hear the words chili and cook-off together, my ears perk up, and I want to enter, and I want to win. And so I did, 
entered the buzzard breath chili from 1978 and won. But it's funny because it was on a Sunday and Corey wanted to experience Sunday fun day. It was at the same time as the chili cook-off. So I contacted the host of the chili cook-off and I said, look, we're not going to be around, but I want to drop off my chili. He said, okay, that's fine. In the meantime, I thought, who could I recruit to kind of man our chili station? And then I immediately thought of Pedro the Butcher, who's, I've talked about him before. He's a buddy of mine. He works at a little market in town and he sells meat. He's always looking to go out and have a good time. So I was like, what a perfect opportunity to hang out with Pedro and to get him to take care of our chili team while we're at Sunday Fun Day. And then we would go back to the chili cook-off afterwards. So I wrangled up Pedro, throw him in the truck, kind of explained to him what I wanted him to do, and drop him off at the chili cook-off. In the meantime, I gave Pedro a $20 bill. I said, here, buy yourself some drinks while we're gone. And I told Corey as we walked away, when we come back to get our blue ribbon, Pedro will not be able to walk. So Corey and I left. We went to Sunday Fun Day. We went back to the chili cook-off, and I hadn't heard who won, but I just walked up, and I was like, hey, where do I get my trophy? And they're like, it's right here. And I said, oh, I won. And they said, yep. Well, come to find out, everyone was a little bit fussy that I just dropped off Pedro and expected to win and came back and won. I got accused of being a little bit cocky, but I don't care. It's funny. It's funny to me. These people just don't know how to make chili. There's nothing I can do for that. I also cooked a leg of a peliway, which I think I've talked about it before, but a peliway is kind of a cross between a goat and a sheep. Uh, they're real popular in South America, and they've kind of made their way up to Central America. But a lot of the locals would buy a whole goat, kill it, cook it on a Saturday or Sunday. But I just bought a leg. I bought a front shoulder, threw it on the grill for about an hour, got some smoke flavor on it, seared it a little bit, took it off, rubbed it down in spices, wrapped it in banana leaves, and cooked it for about 18 hours. And it was pretty much fall off the bone delicious, but it tasted like goat meat. I picked on it a little bit, and Corey and I left to go to Laguna de Pollo, so I gave the whole thing to Ronnie and Ismail. And they said it was delicious. So I've now checked off the Cook Peliway item on my to-do list. Another thing that Corey and I did when he was here was go surfing. And I'd been threatening for a while to go surfing or try to surf or at least ride around the surfboard or paddle around. And that's what I did. It was a little bit tougher than what I expected, but I feel like I can get it down. And it's, I had a good enough time to where I'm willing to keep practicing. And I went a second time when Kale and Melanie and their bunch was down. I didn't do quite as good, but I think it had something to do with the board. Apparently, the board makes a big difference. So I'll keep everyone updated on the surfing progress. It just looks so fun, and those guys make it look easy, but it's not, it's not easy. It must be fun. The only thing I wish is that you could have music. Maybe I could get some waterproof headphones. But it looks fun, and it's a good workout. So I'll probably keep trying. One of the days that everyone was down, we all went to Hermosa Beach, which is the famous beach where they film Survivor. And it's a big, long beach. It's good surfing. And there's a couple little huts, like surf shacks with restaurants and stuff on the beach. But I took the dogs for a walk. I was kind of sore from the previous day of surfing, so I didn't try. 
But I took the dogs for a long walk down the beach. And I came across these guys that were fishing in the surf. And it wasn't for sport or fun, but it was for food and money. So there was about nine of these guys, and they had just a little piece of wood with huge line wrapped around it, probably 70, 80-pound test. And on the other end of the line, they had a hook with a weight, and they make their own lures. And it's just like a little piece of wood that looks kind of like a worm, and they paint them different colors. But anyway, I was watching these guys, and they're out way far away from all the surfers, down at the far end of the beach. And they get back up on the beach, and they watch the birds and wherever the birds go diving for bait fish, they run over there and they swing their lure out there. If they get a bite, they just reel it in by hand. And so I was sitting there watching it, and these guys are all like buff, like muscular, fit guys. And I figured out why. It's because they'll go out there in waist-deep water, or maybe chest-deep, and they fight in the current to stay in one spot. And then when the birds move... A lot of them don't run all the way back to the bank and then run to the new area. They just trudge through the water against the current to get to the next spot up or down the beach. I sat there and watched them, and uh, they move around with such ease in the water. It's pretty impressive. But I pulled one of the guys aside, and I was kind of talking to him, and I thought, man, this is where I wish I had a way to record him so that people could hear what they're saying, although they don't speak English, but... Talking to one guy, he's telling me that he comes out and fishes every single day, and they're catching rooster fish, and then they said some other kind, and I wasn't exactly sure it didn't ring a bell. But they said they, said they sell them for 20 Cordobas a pound, which is about 70 cents. And so their primary source of income is catching one fish at a time and then going around door-to-door and selling them to the houses, the people who live around there. And I said, is this what you've done for work all your life? And he said, this... There is no other work. Like, it's either we do this or we don't eat or we scavenge for food. He said, there's no work around there. And he was telling me there was this big land grab, I think, in the 80s, where the government basically took land away from the locals. And this particular guy had about 300 acres on the beach, or his family did. And the uh, government, when there was a shift in power, they came and took all the land from his dad. So needless to say, he's bitter towards the current government and the party who rules. But it was cool talking to that guy. I saw him catch one fish, and I think it was a Jack Crevel, but he caught it. And you can tell when they catch him because they immediately start walking backwards toward the bank as they're pulling in the line. And so anyway, he, he pulled the fish in, and I looked at it. I thought, man, I wonder what he's going to do with that fish. And he ran over to the shade, dug a hole in the sand, threw the fish in the hole, buried it with the sand, and went back out to the water as fast as he could to try to get more fish. He didn't catch any more, but I was asking him what a good day was. He said a good day, like six to seven fish, is a really good day. He said average is one to three. And I just did some basic math. An average day he makes between 10 and $15. And uh, he said he's happy with that and he can survive on that, which those numbers don't even compute to the first world brain. He also told me that he collected turtle eggs for money. And my first thought was, oh, oh man, because that if you're not familiar with this area, there's a certain species of turtle that's just to this one region of Central America and only a couple beaches in Nicaragua. And there are sea turtles, and they come up, and they dig the holes, and they lay the eggs, and they go back in the ocean. Well, for years and years and years, all the locals would take the eggs and eat them and take the turtles and eat them because that's 
protein and they're starved for protein. And this guy was telling me that he would collect the turtle eggs. And I said, but don't you know that that's bad and that's hurting the turtle population? And he said, yeah, but there's a sanctuary, and I wasn't aware of this, that pays people for turtle eggs. And what they do is they pay higher than the market rate for turtle eggs for consumption. So now instead of these guys digging up turtle eggs and eating them, this group has devised a way to pay them and then they put them in their own hatchery and they have a better chance of surviving than if they're just buried in the sand. And I don't know where the people get the money. I don't know if it's donations or the government sponsors it or what. But I thought it was pretty cool to see the, the free market work in order to help save the turtles and not just jump up and down like a liberal and scream about how much bad we're doing. But someone stepped up and involved some money and now the guys are motivated to save the turtles. He said there are some guys that collect them and eat them, but he said he knows it's bad and doesn't, doesn't want any part of that. I told the guy, Mariano, if he's ever in San Juan del Sur, to call me. We'd have a Tonya together. And he got excited, and I said, do you have a pen? Can you write down my phone number? And he's like, no, I don't have anything. And I said, okay, tell me your phone number, and I'll remember it. And he reads off four digits. And the phone numbers down here are eight digits. There's no, it's not ten digits or... You don't have to dial an area code, just eight regular digits. Or so I thought, because he read off four digits, and I was like, what about the rest of the numbers? And he's like, oh, I don't know the rest of them. And I said, well, how do you call your friends? And he said, well, everyone around here must have the same first four digits of the phone number, and they just memorize the last four. So I was like, well, that's no help there, and I didn't have a phone on me or any way to write it down. So I wrote down all eight digits of my number in the sand and he was going to do his best to memorize it and call me up when he comes to San Juan. But I'd like to interview that guy because I think he could provide a perspective on the way of life down here that not many people could, at least not that live near San Juan del Sur. He lives 30 minutes outside of town and uh, he probably doesn't come here much. One thing I forgot to mention about our trip to Guatemala, I did tell the story about dealing with the guys and the lack of a stamp on my passport and how it threw them for a loop and they got all fussy about it. But I forgot to mention what he told me when he was all upset of the situation. He was speaking in Spanish in regards to my accusing him of just making up an arbitrary number to charge me for there not being a stamp in my passport. And so that's when I started asking him to let me see the book, show me the book. And then he replies with, oh, you're American. You can get whatever you want. You can think you just push people around and, and do whatever you want to do. And, and I could tell that he was associating issues with me being American. And instead of taking offense to that, I just kind of thought, you know what, that's probably true. He has a set of experiences with people and their attitudes, and he's noticed a difference in that Americans probably are more pushy. They're probably more assertive. And that goes back to my original theory that America was a country founded by people who were willing to risk everything and search for something better. And I think that that is encoded by default and a lot of the Americans' personality, because for generations, our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and so on have all been taught 
But if you don't like things, you can change it. It's up to you. You're the destiny of your own universe. And so that's been instilled in our culture, and that must show through when we get to situations that require a little bit of pushback. But I just thought that was an interesting point, and I didn't bring it up on the last one. I just kind of missed it. So that's that. So if you're an American, be pushy. That's okay, but just be nice and respectful. Okay, today was kind of a short episode. I just wanted to get some things caught up and get an episode published. I'm also going to be publishing a podcast with me and Kale. So for those of you that don't know, Kale is one of my buddies, and he's married to my cousin Melanie, who's also a good friend as well as a cousin. So they came down and visited. Kale does a podcast called The Bird Killer. You should check it out if you haven't. It's on iTunes, and it's also on Podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com, if you don't have an Apple device. But he came over and sat down, and we did an old-school podcast, just the two of us shooting the breeze, talking about whatever popped into our minds. So that'll be up, too, and that's going to be a lot longer than this one. So if you get mad because it's short, just remember that it's free. And I plan on doing one next week also. I have some stuff coming up this week that should make for some good stories. So thanks again for listening. I hope you didn't give up on me, but I'm back. But I will say, after next week, I've got a trip home to the States for like seven or eight days for a family reunion. So I feel like I've been going nonstop. I need a vacation. Thanks again for listening. Life in Paradise podcast. Check out our website, nikasaleandsurf.com. Or send me a message on the email, nikasaleandsurf at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. Keep it tranquilo. Let's go. Ain't no sound with the sound of speech. Machine guns ready to go.